As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Yes, hello there. Thank you so much for tuning in and thank you for listening to this week's Zonal Marking podcast, which is brought to you by The Athletic. I am Ali Maxwell and I've got Michael Cox on the line. And Michael, I'm afraid I've been hearing strong rumours you've been writing again for The Athletic. <laughs> yeah, sorry to uh, sorry to confirm that. But yeah, International Week. I've tried not to overdo it on the international front because people seem quite bored of internationals at the moment. But I thought Jack Grealish's performance for England against Belgium was worthy of note. And maybe the reaction to it was worthy of note. Lots of calls for him to be a, a kind of regular part of the, the side and lots of calls for the side to, quote, be built around him. So I've kind of investigated that concept for an article that's up on the site now. It's hard to be bored of the international break when you've got penalty shootouts in order to qualify for major tournaments, when you've got <laughs> North Macedonia and Goran Pandev. I know that was a story that you very much enjoyed back end of last week. Come on, we can't be slagging off international breaks too much, surely. Hey, I enjoyed it. I think the playoffs for a major tournament is pretty much as good as it gets in terms of international football. But uh, yeah, in terms of the major countries, people seem a little bit... Uh, the Nations League, I don't think, really has captured people's imagination in terms of the, the group stage of the 2020-2021 Nations League, which is slightly difficult to get your head around because it doesn't lead to qualification for the Euros, does it? So it's a strange one. But uh, yeah, it's been all right. A couple more games to come. And then, uh, yeah, back to Premier League on uh, on Saturday. I suppose probably legitimate concerns about breaking bubbles and forming new bubbles and travelling across nations during a global pandemic. But we'll leave that for, for other podcasts to talk about. Uh, just a reminder to the listeners that Michael's writing is on the Athletic site and app. And if you're not a subscriber, then you can be for just £1 a week. If you go to theathletic.com forward slash zonal marking, you can sign up for £1 a week and read everything that Coxie writes, Tom Warville, of course, and so many other on The Athletic. Michael, would you be so kind as to introduce our topic for this week and our debutant guest? Yeah, Tom Warville is away this week. I think he's uh, updating his calculator ahead of uh, future episodes. Um, <laughs> so yeah, we were, it's, it's something slightly topical, I suppose, because this weekend uh, Javier Mascherano announced that he was uh, retiring from playing at the age of 36. He's been back in 
Argentina with Estudiantes. I thought he'd be a great player to uh, give a bit of a tribute to and have a chat about. He had a wonderfully varied career and quite interesting tactically over the course of his career, particularly at Barcelona. So yeah, we're joined by Rupert Fryer, who is uh, very much an Argentine football expert. And he's going to fill us in on, uh, I guess, the bits we don't know about his uh, Mascarano's Argentine background and his, his time in South America and his time with the national side. We've got in our crosshairs today El Jefecito, the little chief Javier Mascherano, the most capped player in the history of the Argentinian men's national team. Six caps more currently than Lionel Messi. So it's a record that may not last too much longer. But we're going to start at the beginning Rupert, we know all about the Argentine obsession with the number 10, but they've also got a decent relationship with the tough tackling defensive midfielder, don't they? And I guess to start with, I'm interested to know when Mascherano came through initially with River in Argentina, was that the mould that he fit into or was he something different as a young player? Yeah, very much so. I think he was very much, the, in many ways, the, the archetypal Argentinian number five. He was what they were called a little Pac-Man who would sort of charge around the field gobbling up all the loose balls. When he first signed for River, um, I was looking back at some of the interviews he did this week, actually, obviously, upon his retirement, and they recall some quotes of when he, when he first joined, joined the club and first signed professional papers, and he said, he said, I'll fit in really well here. I don't really have any talent, but I get the team movement moving. And I mean, talent's a kind of a loose translation. I think it, it kind of means he's not Pablo Aymar. He's not going to dribble past 10 players. But he said he'll get the team moving. And I think it was, it was that ability to get the team moving which would sort of really go on to to define what became a, a truly magnificent career, really. I mean, he had a fair few Argentinian coaches for the national team, but uh, and most of them said this, but specifically Sergio Batista said that, always said that Mascherano was my first pass out of defence. And um, I think that was one of the key things that, that, that he brought. And I think it was also an attribute that kind of became increasingly important over the time in which his career spanned, sort of as we kind of moved as we had certain developments and tactical developments in a game and we had Barcelona of course and all these teams are sort of pressing higher I just I think that became more and more important but um but yeah he was he was definitely a sort of the archetypal number five and, and in, instantly a fan favorite I mean the two biggest cheers if you've ever been to Argentinian football aside from goals of course the two biggest cheers you'll ever hear from the crowd are for Acaño and Nutmeg and an absolute reducer and Maserano could could really get into the tackles. He sort of he called himself a few on a few occasions. He said, "I'm just a fan who plays." And I think that kind of he was obviously much more than that. But I think it does kind of encapsulate the way that people felt about him, and probably the way that lots of Argentinian football fans feared about their number fives. Like they're the workhorses. They're the guys with the passion. They're the ones who go the extra mile for the team, and kind of. It feels to them like this is who what I would do if I could play right now. Yeah, and, and every time he has spoken in the press or every, everything I've read uh, when he's been interviewed, people like Sid Lowe in the past have, have performed brilliant interviews with Mascherano. That passion really comes across in how he speaks about the game as well. And we'll get into that more later on in the podcast. But sticking with his, his early career, he only played in, in South America for three years or so. And it wasn't all at River, of course. He actually got a pretty big move or an expensive move, I would suggest, to Corinthians. And I'm wondering how those first few years went. Was he absolutely tearing it up both in Argentina and then in Brazil? I mean, the teams that he was playing for, both River and Corinthians at that time, experienced some success, but also some quite poor seasons too. Yeah, they did. Tearing up 
probably wouldn't be the right phrase. I mean, it's difficult, I think, as a defensive midfielder to really <laughs> sort of tear it up in that sense. There are other ways in yeah. which you can tear it up, which which he was perfectly capable of doing. But um, as I said, he was he was he was loved at, at River Plate. They they took to him quite quickly um, for all of the things that that we previously discussed, and it was quite clear that he he wasn't really for long in in Buenos Aires, and so. Yeah, as you as you alluded to, then came Corinthians and I guess or Corinthians Project MSI or perhaps MSI's Project Corinthians, where obviously this investment fund came in and, and formed this sort of partnership with the club and just brought in a whole boat host of, sort of MSI owned players, obviously including Carlos Tevez and, and Maserano, but they repatriated the likes of Nilmar and Carlos Alberto. They brought Sebastian Dominguez over from Argentina too, so it was it was very much a, a sort of strange and exciting but probably also quite curious and worrying project they implemented and they didn't really have much stability there either i think they went through seven or eight coaches inside two years including the likes of sort of teach who was obviously now brazil manager and daniel passarello was there for a little bit but um yeah i don't think that project was really ever there for that long um the night i mean they won the title with Maserano in 2005 the brazilian national championship but I think the knives were out pretty quick because I think a lot of the fans weren't necessarily hugely trustworthy of MSI and its intentions. And there was a lot of allegations too, um, most of which, or I think all of which actually were completely absolved in a Brazilian court just for, for your legal team there. But um, I think the fans pr- quite quickly lost trust in the owners and they moved on and, and decided they wanted to invest some of their money into the English game. And of course, famously took Javier Mascherano and Carlos Tevez with them. Yeah, I mean, just refresh our memory on, on that one. You've you've started the story there. How did Mascherano and Carlos Tevez end up with West Ham right at the end of the summer transfer window of 2006? Well, again, in a word, MSI. As I said, they wanted to invest in English football. They settled on West Ham. Obviously, they're, they're a London club and with a great tradition and history. Um, but I guess it quickly became apparent that Javier Mascherano was no Hayden Mullins, so it, <laughs> it, it, it didn't go fantastically well. No, it, it was obviously a strange situation, and while TPO was commonplace in South America, it, it was something that we'd everyone had sort of grown used to. It was very that is con- third party ownership. TPO, it, it is yes, third yep. party ownership. It was, it, as I said, it was it was commonplace in South America, but it was a fairly sort of new concept, I think, to not only to British football fans, but obviously to seemingly to the British football authorities as well. So, it was a bit of a strange situation, and we we joke about Hayden Mullins, I mean, disparaging, perfectly brilliant Premier League or good Premier League player, but uh, it was it was quite strange, and and Maserano never really played. I think both Pardew, Alan Pardew and Kirbisley might have been there while he was. And he never really got a proper run. So it just it just never really worked out for Maserano in particular. And I guess it's not massively surprising. He was just kind of he was kind of parked there by somebody else for their means rather than his. Um, and he said all the right things. He was always like, I, I wanted this club to be successful and I want to be here for many years to come and all of the traditional sound bites you'd expect. But it was quite clearly just a shut window for for MSI to, to flip him on and, and sell for a big profit. Yeah, as you say, it was it was a unique situation for English football and not something we've seen previously or since. I mean, West Ham ended up being fined over £5 million by the Premier League for the whole saga. And yeah, as you say, I think it's unusual for us, even thinking back and seeing a player, especially a young player and, and someone who was so highly rated in world football, already at that stage sort of being moved about almost like a chess piece is is not what what English football fans are used to and it was a bizarre situation Michael it was only five appearances in a West Ham shirt 
230 minutes total with a few appearances out of those five off the bench. They lost all five games in which he appeared as well. And then <laughs> it was on it was on to Liverpool for Mascherano, where he had a much happier time. In fact, less than a year after signing for West Ham under a cloud, he was playing a, a Champions League final uh, in the red of Liverpool. Yeah, I must say, I was surprised to learn it was only five games. I thought it was more like more like a dozen, but five is incredible, isn't it? Um, yeah, I mean, he moved on to Liverpool, basically got out as soon as he could, didn't he, of, uh, of Upson Park. And I think he kind of had to work around some some regulations there because he weren't allowed to play for more than two clubs in a 12-month 12 12-month 12 period, and, and he did. Not quite sure how he got around that. But yeah, I mean, the balance they had in that midfield at Liverpool, I think, was probably as we as good as we've seen in the Premier League in terms of a three-man midfield. I mean, Mascherano was the pure holding midfielder. I think at that time it suited Xabi Alonso, who much preferred playing alongside a defensive midfielder. You know, the, the Champions League final of 2005 was was probably the, the great example of that. He was so much better after Haman came on. And the combination of those two gave... Steven Gerrard licensed to play as a number 10, almost a second striker. And his goal scoring rate was just exceptional at that time. And I think at that time, we didn't really consider so much the playmaking skills of a defensive midfielder. Guardiola hadn't yet come in and, and revolutionised the game at Barcelona. At the time, it was kind of considered, you know, OK, a nice bonus if your defensive midfielder could play good passes. But really, they were just there to break up the play. And I think at that time, Mascherano probably did that as well as anyone in English football. When he was alongside one of the great passers, certainly the great long-range passers in Xabi Alonso that the that the Premier League has seen. Uh, Rupert, what was Mascherano's spell at Liverpool? How was that considered back in his native Argentina? And how was Argentinian football developing its relationship with Mascherano? I, I, I guess with some of these players when they move away so young, like he did to Corinthians and then to Europe, um, what's the relationship like between Argentinian football fans, the press, and these players who, who move abroad like Mascherano did? It depends, firstly, how long you've you were in, your, in the native country before you left, and then secondly, who you played for as well, really. I mean, if you're a former River Plate player, a former Boca Juniors player, then you're already going to have a pretty nice groundswell of, of support, I think, back home. South American fans and, and journalists and the entire football industry there have become so used now to, to seeing their young players move on, most of whom before they even kicked the ball at home. So, so Macedano always had, like I said, he always had sort of a, a, a groundswell of, of support back home. And I think the transfer to Liverpool just kind of seemed like a bit of a return to the norm really, as in after selling him for such big money to Corinthians, it was like, this is probably where Mastellano should be. Not strange, sort of this strange move that transpired when he turned up at West Ham and never played and everybody's wondering where on earth he is. I think Coco Basile at the time was, was saying, saying things along those lines. What is Mastellano doing there? And if he wants to play in the national team, he really needs to be somewhere where he's playing football. Michael, before we move on from his time at Liverpool, this was where English football got to know Maserano properly and, and the key qualities of his game, which led to such an amazing career. But although he may have been many things and had many qualities as a footballer, he was not a goal threat, never a goal threat. No, it ended with 428 league games and two goals, which is what I like from a kind of pure <laughs> defensive player. One of them was actually a really great goal for Liverpool. The only one he scored for Liverpool, which was a home to Reading, like a, a rocket out of nowhere from about 25 yards into the top corner. Um, and the only other one was for Barcelona, a penalty against Osasuna when I think they were 5-1 up. Uh, Leo Messi had been substituted. Uh, Suarez was still on the bench. 
and uh, Ivan Rakitic very generously gave Mascherano the ball and he absolutely thumped it home. There was no real precision involved there. It was a yeah an absolute thunderbolt of a penalty. Um, and yeah, he was kind of playing, I guess, a little bit of a throwback in the sense that he he kind of knew what he was good at and stuck to it. He wasn't the kind of universal player we see now. He wasn't a Frankie de Jong who was dribbling forward from defence. He considered himself a defensive player and he pretty much left the attacking to uh, to those more talented than him. Well, that's why I, I feel like the goal against Reading, he must have been feeling a bit weird that day or something must have gone wrong because to even attempt a long shot feels very un and you know maybe there was nothing else on maybe he was just a an elaborate clearance you know he didn't want to give the ball away in a dangerous area but uh, I, I love that goal record just two two league goals in his whole career uh, Rupert let's talk about his international career for Argentina he was a, a serial runner-up at least if you look at, at his honours board four runners-up medals in the Copper America of course in the World Cup as well but he did win two Olympic gold medals in 2004 and 2008. How seriously are Olympic football gold medals taken in Argentina compared to the UK or, or in Europe where they're not taken <clears throat> that seriously? Yeah, much more so. I think throughout the continent, they're taken much more more important than, than we hold them. I guess there are certain uh, manyfold reasons for that. I guess, particularly in England, I mean, we didn't really have a team competing in those competitions, do, do we? So I think that always created a little bit more distance between English football fans and that competition as a whole. But no, back home in South America plays big. It's always played big. I mean, you need to look at the previous one where, of course, Neymar skipped the Copa America that same summer so that he could play the Olympic Games. I think that probably tells you much of the importance of, the, of that competition there. I mean, it was the last title that Brazil wanted to win, that hadn't won. So th there was that too. But yeah, generally it does play much big and it, it goes back to a whole history and obviously to Uruguay's pre-World Cup victories as well and holding them those Olympic, those early Olympic medals over Argentina for, for, for so long. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's always played much big, but you're right, apart from that. And I mean, those, those gold medals were celebrated this week a little bit in the Argentinian press. But, yeah, it, um, it didn't go brilliantly for him at senior level, I guess, well, certainly in terms of titles. As you said, he lost four Copa America finals and a, three of those on penalties, I think, and a World Cup final. He once went three years consecutively losing major finals, uh, World Cup finals squeezed in between two Copa Americas. Um, but I was looking back at them actually a little bit this week and I wonder if, obviously penalty shootouts are devastating to, to lose on penalties, but I wonder if the one that probably hurt the most might have been 2007 because that was a, a really, really good Argentina side. If you look at all the problems that, that Argentina have had over the previous decade or so with pretty much no real talent or, or, or well, certainly no world-class talent to call on uh, across the back four. I mean, this this Argentina team in 2007 was went to the Copa America and eventually lost to a, a really big, strong, counter-attacking, functional Brazil side. This Argentina side, side really seemed to have it all. They had good full-backs. They still had Roberto Aixala. They had, so they had strength, strength at the back. And in midfield, Macerano had Cambayaso sitting next to him, which helped with a lot of the work that Macedonia would usually be doing. They had Veron floating around in between them. And of course, they had Riquelme there. So going back to where we opened, that sort of first pass out of defence had probably never been so easy for Macedonia. Um And so that one would have certainly hurt. Hello, I'm Ian McIntosh. And despite literally spending months of my life playing football manager, I'm still terrible at it. That's why I'm launching The Football Manager Show, the latest podcast from The Athletic. Every week, I'll speak to the people who know the game best, the people who make the game. 
We'll take a proper look at things like training, recruitment and tactics. We'll try to answer your questions. We'll do everything we can to keep you eager to play just one more game and altogether less inclined to quit without saving. The era of Cherno and Tonton and dear sweet Michael Duff is over. The new football manager is bigger, better, more challenging than ever. And I need some help. If you do too, you can subscribe now. Just look for the Football Manager Show by The Athletic, wherever you get all your other podcasts. It starts in November, and knowing my track record, I'll be unemployed by December. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. 2008 to 2010, the Argentina manager was one of the aforementioned famous <laughs> number 10s, Diego Maradona. And it was an eventful period, I think it's fair to say. But one thing really shone through, and that was his love for his Pac-Man, his number five, Mascherano. Yeah, absolutely. I mean... Maradona is pretty much as passionate as they come about most things in life, um, but certainly about football and, and more specifically the Argentinian national football team. Um, you'll, you'll rarely see people supporting the, the team with as much passion, I guess we should say, as he does from the sidelines. Of, as you've seen, you've all seen him there having heart attacks quite literally at times mm. um, on the sidelines and up in the stands. And yeah, I think he took to Mascherano instantly because he just felt like Mascherano was sort of like the physical embodiment of how much he himself cared for Argentina and how much he himself wanted to win. Mascherano was his, his little warrior. And, you know, it was always Mascherano and 10 others. And later that became, if we had 11 Mascheranos, we'd win the World Cup. But um, as you said, it, it, it was chaotic, both on and off the pitch. I mean, Argentina were unsurprisingly a bit of a shambles really it was it was carnage tactically speaking going into that tournament a young Nicolas Otamendi was thrown in at right back that probably gives you a a, a bit of a peek into how bad it was Michael in 2010 he joined Barcelona three and a half years with, with Liverpool where uh, after that first half season where they reached the Champions League final they finished fourth and then second of course in 0809 and then seventh, a bit of a fall from grace there in, in 2009, 2010. Uh, then came a move to Barcelona for Mascherano. And, and from what I remember at the time, people really wondered whether this was a good fit for him and where he would fit more specifically uh, in this Barcelona side. Yeah, you're spot on. I mean, he went there as very much the understudy to Sergio Busquets, who just won the World Cup for Spain. And Mascherano was very complimentary about him. He did an interview when he, well, after he got there, I think after his first season and he said, you know, I'm I'm here and I watch Busquets and I learn from him. And Busquets was a much younger player than Mascherano. Um, he said, I'd love to be able to play like him, but I can't. And so what happened was he, he ended up becoming a centre-back. And I think there's been a slight um, revisionist approach to whether Guardiola really intended to do this because when you look at it, it took most of his first season before he played there. He didn't play there until April of 2010-11 for his second leg away at Shakhtar when Barcelona were 5-1 up from the first leg and didn't have much to lose. And Barcelona had a centre-back crisis at this point. Puyol was out injured. Um, Eric Abidal was in the early stages of his illness. Um, it's also worth pointing out, Guardiola had tried to get in proper centre-backs. I mean, he'd got in Chigrinsky, um, ironically from Shakhtar Donetsk. He'd gone back by that point. But he was quite focused on getting a proper centre-back in. And 
I mean, it actually goes further than that because Guardiola had tried Busquets as a centre-back, I think about 10 times before he used Mascherano there. But I think for this game in particular, he was quite scared of the, the speed of Luis Adriano up front. And although Mascherano wasn't the quickest, he was quicker than Busquets. And Busquets, I think, had been really caught out for pace a couple of times in the first leg. So, I mean, if this was a grand plan, it took the absence of Abidal, the absence of Poyol, and the lack of suitability for Busquets for him to be used there. So I'm going for maybe a plan D for, for Mascherano to be used as a centre-back. Um, and obviously did very well there, and that became really his regular position at Barcelona. I think he eventually said he preferred playing at centre-back to central midfield. But I'm not completely convinced, as, as many people now say, that Guardiola did get in Mascherano with the primary intention of using him in defence. I, I think you're probably right, Michael. But regardless of that, I think the fact that, that he did adapt so well probably speaks to one of the, of the, the key strength of uh, key attributes of Mascherano and, and, and that was sort of giving him such a, a brilliant career, really. I mean, that sort of tactical intelligence and understanding of the game that he has. I mean, it was there right from the very start. I mean, we haven't touched on this yet, but, but Mascherano, of course, made his professional debut for the Argentinian national team before he had kicked the ball for other play. And he had done that because well, Bielsa was the coach and Bielsa had spotted that sort of tactical intelligence in him in the youth teams. And so whenever the senior team needed to draft in some ringers to, to make up the numbers in training matches, Mascherano would always be called up. And again, I mean, you look at you look at the coaches under whom sort of Mascherano really flourished over his career. And you've got, of course, the early did Bielsa sort of gave him his start. He was terrific under Rafa and then, of course, under Pep. And these guys are all, for want of a better phrase, of football and academics, kind of system coaches, guys, uh, coaches who have an, sort of this overall idea of play and they find or coach players to fit into that rather than the other way around. And so Mascherano had always shown that. And I think never was it more evident in this positional change, of course, at Barcelona. But he just he just had this great capacity to learn. And, and like I said, this really great ability to just adapt. I mean, again, if you just take his career path up to Barcelona as well, he's gone from, from River to Corinthians. And footballistically, that is a massive culture shock. Midfields in Brazil operate markedly differently to what you'd see in Argentina. And then from going to, to Brazil into the Premier League, again, I mean, those back contrast is as stark as it could pro possibly come for, for a footballer. And then to go from that sort of very functional, disciplined, uh, sort of Rafa Benitez side to Barcelona and to play in a, in a way that, as I think, as we mentioned, Mascherano said he never even thought was possible before he got here. Well, isn't it amazing that we're talking about a classic Argentinian number five, and I'm slightly leaning on the website transfer marked here, but he obviously ended up playing 334 games in all comps for Barcelona, uh, around eight years he spent at the club. And because, he, you know, he, he was converted or he was used as a centre-back from fairly early on, probably his second season there, uh, really regularly. So he's actually finished his career having played more games as a centre-back than as a defensive midfielder, which is something quite remarkable, I think. Yeah, and I think... One of the most interesting things is that by the end of his career, or certainly by the end of his time at Barcelona, I don't think if you looked at him for the first time, you would have thought he was a defensive midfielder playing out of position or anything like that. I mean, his early time as a centre-back, I think he was slightly vulnerable in the air. I remember a Copa del Rey final where Real Madrid just continually targeted him with kind of aerial balls to Ronaldo and, and actually Pepe, who was playing almost as a roaming attacking midfielder at that stage. But yeah, towards the end of his career, I mean, you would have just put him in the category of, you know, kind of Fabio Cannavaro or Franco Baresi as, as centre-backs who just happened to be short. I mean, I wouldn't say he was necessarily on that level. 
but perhaps alongside someone like Ivan Cordoba, you know, Inter Milan and Colombia defender who was very short, but made up for his uh, lack of height with really good positioning and a good leap. And I don't think Mascherano really was any more vulnerable in aerial situations than a lot of other top-class centre-backs. Rupert, did he play centre-back for Argentina? At times, but he predominantly retained his role as a defensive midfielder, which I guess might, given given what we've just discussed, might seem a little bit strange to onlookers, particularly when you think that, I think we mentioned earlier as well, Argentina haven't had a top-class centre-half in well over 10 years now. I think you'd probably have to go right the way back to Roberto Aishala, who, God, retired... 2007, 2008. But I think the issue there was probably that Mascherano was quite clearly their best five. I think there's also, there was also an understanding that he performed so well at centre-half, but under a very specific set of circumstances and in a very specific system, which, believe me, they did try to, to replicate in, in the national team, just to, not most notably just to get to try and get the best out of Lionel Messi. Sergio Batista famously tried it, and it was a bit of a disaster, really. But he did come very close to, to success, as we mentioned. Runners-up in the World Cup in 2014, defeat in the final, Michael. But across the whole tournament, Mascherano received a lot of plaudits for his performances. Yeah, he was excellent. I mean, Messi was was maybe not quite on top of his game in the knockout stages, but Argentina got to the final as much really because they just kept on keeping clean sheets. I mean, until the Mario Götze goal in the final, they hadn't conceded a goal in the knockout stages. Um, and I think two of those games went to extra time. And yeah, much of that, I would say, was about Mascherano, who at this stage didn't have the captain's armband. He'd, he'd kind of uh, relinquished that when uh, it was given to Messi, but I think was really still the leader. Um, and in fact, he was so good at this tournament that uh, Roy Hodgson, if you remember, named him first in his Ballon d'Or votes for the year, which um, he got a lot of stick for. But actually, I think I mean, I mean, think his other votes were for uh, Philip Lahm and Manuel Neuer. And they were arguably three players who, you know, really stood out in the defensive sense and were, you know, Mascherano in a different way. But I think they were all really interesting players tactically. Obviously, uh, Neuer developed... What we know as a goalkeeper, Lam did something similar, converting to a midfielder from a fullback. And Mascherano, albeit not international level, but you know, as we're talking about, was this very unusual, uh, almost accidental centre back. So um, I don't have a problem with the Hodgson's notes for that uh, Ballon d'Or. I thought that was quite nice. Yeah, no, neither neither do I at all. And it's quite remarkable, really, when you when I look back now and think that they didn't concede a goal in the knockout stages. I mean, the coach Alejandro Sorella had this famous quote ahead of the tournament, basically saying that whenever ever the opposition attacks his side, he basically has to cover his eyes. So he's he. I don't think he certainly wasn't expecting that. But like you said, Mascherano was was fabulous in that tournament on a personal level. Up until obviously the the Goethe goal, it was probably as close as he could really ever expect of having sort of the personal the perfect tournament for himself. And he had been he had been really really important as well in the the few years going into that World Cup too, when Sabella really did for the first time in in, in quite a while get this Argentina side really really functioning. And um, a part of that actually was uh, the introduction of another five in Fernando Gago, who coincidentally also retired this week um, huh. after Bad a terrible, terrible run of injuries. Yeah, I mean, I think I saw a stat that he missed over a thousand days in the last five years or so with 
through injury. So, and he just did his ACL again. So he, he's had to call it quits, which is a shame. But Gago was very important to that Argentina side ahead of 2014 World Cup. He they they were long looking for this sort of deep lying playmaker, someone who could get the ball, be a bit more creative in deeper spaces, so that Messi wouldn't have to keep retreating and could instead sort of receive the ball on the front foot. And Gago was 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 the one who provided that. And Mascherano's role in in, in that setup was was hugely important because he was the one who would gobble up all the ground around Gago to relieve Gago some of, of some of those defensive responsibilities. And, and Michael, we've mentioned that this was no goal scorer, this was no goal threat, but he's the sort of player who treats goal-saving tackles more importantly than, than goals, I think it's fair <laughs> to say. And he's got a few on his list. One of them he, he talks about in an interview that I've referenced already with Sid Lowe, a, a tackle on Nicholas Bentner, of all people, in March of 2011, um, when he had, well, when he'd been chucked in to play centre-back in his first season with Barcelona. But of course, in the 2014 World Cup and in the semi-final, uh, that tackle on Ian Robin is probably what well, it's probably his number one highlight, I guess, if you had to do a countdown of Mascherano moments. I mean, I'm not sure anyone would make that compilation, but that would surely be number one. <laughs> yeah, I think it's great for two reasons. One is obviously the context. I mean, if he doesn't make that tackle and the ball goes in the goal, then, uh, you know, the Netherlands are in the final instead of Argentina. But I think when you look at it tactically as well, I mean, let's remember Mascherano is playing as a defensive midfielder in this tournament. He's not a centre-back. You don't expect your defensive midfielders to be sweeping in behind your centre-backs. But that's exactly what happens. I mean, Robin goes past uh, one of the Argentine defenders and Mascherano just tracks the run all the way and makes a really perfectly uh, timed tackle. So, yeah, that for me, you know, I'm not... Uh, yeah, to paraphrase Pep Guardiola, I'm not a, a journalist <laughs> for the tackles, but uh, I did absolutely love that moment. It was it was really really tremendous. You know, speaking tactically, I actually watched um, that tackle again this week, and it really it really was brilliantly tactically speaking from from Mascherano. Brilliant, and it, it kind of showed that tactical intelligence that we referred to earlier. Because as Michael said, Mascherano is the, the holding midfielder here, and Robin floats in from the Argentine left, and he runs behind Mascherano. But Mascherano is always looking around and he spotted Robin and just went with him. And as Robin sort of received the ball and took that first touch, he, he faced Martin Di Michelis. And again, Mascherano had the intelligence to understand that Robin was about to try and take on a hologram. So Mascherano, of course, swept around, swept around him and made that incredible tackle. And for one, well, he, he ripped his anus. So there's a, there's, a, there's a fabulous shot of Mascherano sort of looking up. With, his, with wide-eyed, with a great sense of shock, saying, I've just ripped my ass. Um, and so that, for that alone, he'll go down in infamy. And he also, in doing that, he also eclipsed a record previously held by Leo Ponzio of the greatest river player ever to suffer an anal injury on, on the field when Ponzio's um, hemorrhoids burst during a game. <laughs> When Michael said we had to get you on the pod, Rupert, I knew there was a reason. <laughs> this, is, and this is why. Such intricate knowledge of such intricate injuries is exactly why. Now, just before we move on and talk about the next steps for him, uh, I think best for us all to put that last conversation behind us and enjoy the should. commentary from that tackle, which we'll drop in here. Tucked into Robin, he let it run, starting with the back. Serrano went all the way back with Arjen Robben. There were echoes there for the Champions League final uh, two years ago. Brilliant. I just wonder if he could have got the shot away a little bit quicker. 
layoff from Schneider's perfect. Did he have to have that second touch? He sort of added to have a look at the goalkeeper and see where he was. What a challenge that is. Sensational tackle from Mascherano. That is. It was after that game, of course, that Mascherano really sort of achieved this sort of superhero status in Argentina as well. And he became sort of a bit of a social media phenomenon, at least for a few weeks when everybody was doing these sort of hashtag Mashi facts. And they were things like, when the Obelesco, Obelesco wants to celebrate, it goes to Mascherano's house. And Mascherano doesn't do push-ups, he pushes the world down. Things like this. And so it, w it was really a moment where, I, where Mascherano kind of cemented this status as a, as a real hero and idol of that national team. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. And obviously caught the attention of Roy Hodgson. I, I think the nicest part about that vote for Hodgson is that if you Google Hodgson Mascherano, you do mostly get people saying, why has Roy Hodgson voted Mascherano number one for the Ballon d'Or? <laughs> but you also get a few quotes from when Ma Hodgson was manager of Liverpool and Mascherano was essentially refusing to play because he was trying to push through his move to Barcelona. And I think that really sums up the man, Roy Hodgson, very well. No grudges there, just an appreciation for good defensive football players. Uh, Rupert, <laughs> we're, we're, we're nearing the end here, so we're going to get some juicy stuff from you. And, and I want your opinion here, really. We've referenced Argentine number fives plenty on this podcast. Where do we rank Javier Mascherano amongst all-time Argentine number fives? I mean, he's, he's obviously got to be right up there. I mean, a certain part of that might depend on what, Argentinians want from their fives. There are some very different fives we've touched on the likes of Dago and you could look at Fernando Redondo as well. And so there are kind of different types from your sort of Javier Maceranos and Diego Simeone's. But yeah, he's he's undoubtedly right up there. It's been a, a tremendous career. It's a shame that he never ended it with a, with a major title for his country, but he'll end as the as the most capped player. And um, I mean, he probably played one World Cup too many. I think we've 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 handed him a lot of praise, and rightly so, during this world, during this this pod so far. So I don't think it's it's too disparaging to mention that <clears throat> that he certainly did play one World Cup too many in 2018. He, I think he really should should have called it quits before then, not least because Argentina were an utter mess going into that tournament. I mean, that I don't think Jorge Sampaoli ever really had the time to properly implement his ideas and that Bielsen style of football when people don't know what they're doing, it's pretty much as bad as it gets. So yeah, there was that. But um, but aside aside from that, he was he's he's had a tremendous career for Argentina, and he'll certainly be remembered as 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 one of the best they produced. I mean, was his appearance at that World Cup potentially a result of a struggle to find an uh, an obvious or a natural or a or a, a a successor that was good enough? I mean, how have Argentina moved past 
uh, the Mascherano era. I note that the current number five in the squad is Leandro Paredes, who has been mentioned on this podcast once after Michael was very impressed with his performance in the Champions League knockout stages. Um, is there anyone else who can fill that gap? Yeah, it's one. I think it's one of the things that they're struggling with. I mean, Paredes is was a 10, of course. Paredes came through at Boca and was supposed to be the next 10 after Riquelme. But obviously Riquelme decided to, to stay another year or so and Paredes never really played. And so Oni moved to Italy and it's in Europe where they've converted him back into a five. Um, I guess not massively dissimilar to what happened to Andrea Pirlo. But um, but yeah, Argentina, they have struggled a bit, but they've struggled with, with lots of things. Um, I think the current coach, Scaloni, kind of got the job through proximity, really. He was just kind of the the closest man available when they realised they couldn't really get anybody else. The way he's kind of circumnavigated the, the, the issue of Mascherano not being there anymore is to try and make the team a little bit more compact and spread out the defensive work amongst sort of the three midfielders that he's traditionally picked there. But yeah, it's probably fair to say that they have struggled to replace him. They certainly certainly haven't got anyone like him right now. Uh, and Michael, was Mascherano, whether he was always anointed to move back to the heart of defence, you've said potentially not more luck than design but is there something of a trendsetter when it comes to Mascherano as defensive midfielders converted to centre-backs? Yeah I think we see it a lot more now and especially with a player like Mascherano who wasn't the most expressive on the ball I think these days you've probably got to have a little bit more than he had in terms of uh, you know his possession play to play defensive midfield for for one of the top clubs but yeah certainly Guardiola in particular has done it many times we saw it with Xavi Martinez at Bayern Munich at Manchester City last year, there was one game away at Crystal Palace, I think, where uh, Guardiola used Fernandinho and Rodri together as a centre-back pairing because he knew City were going to dominate the ball and there wasn't going to be much traditional defending to do. So yeah, maybe that is a bit of a legacy of Mascherano. I mean, Guardiola had used Yaya Toure as a centre-back in the 2009 Champions League final, but that was more of an emergency. And I guess it's a slight irony that Mascherano really was Toure's replacement. Uh, one defensive midfielder for another, but they had completely opposite journeys. Mascherano became a, a centre-back, while Torre became more of a attacking midfielder at Manchester City. But uh, yeah, he's certainly, um, I think, really interesting player, Mascherano, his development into a centre-back. And uh, I'm sure that yeah, we'll look back on his time quite fondly, I think, in years to come. Tactically astute and passionate and played under some great managers, of course, Pep Guardiola, Rafa Benitez, Alan Pardew, uh, Chris Coleman out in China as well. Um, <laughs> Rupert, any chance of him following their, in their footsteps and becoming a manager? Yeah, probably. Like he's, he started his, his, his coaching badges while he was still playing. I think it's one of the reasons too, it seems like it was one of the reasons too that he came back for one last dance in Argentina with Estudiantes. And he's, I think during lockdown, I think he's, he's completed his equ equivalent of a pro license there too. So he, he, he holds the credentials now to take a job tomorrow if he wanted one. Um, I think he's, he's kind of busy adapting to life after football right now. He's just set up an academy just outside of Buenos Aires where he's going to try and coach and, and help young players. Um, but yeah, it, it, it seems as if... Uh, a career in coaching is certainly something he'll take a stab at at some point in the future. And there's quite a few recognisable names from their playing days who are now involved uh, in coaching and management in uh, Argentinian football. Uh, a few names in the Argentine coaching staff, Lionel Scaloni, uh, Pablo Aymar, Roberto Ayala, you've mentioned a few times, and Walter Samuel involved as well. How are they getting on? Um, not brilliantly. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, not, it's, not been, it's not been a disaster, but... It's not really been great. I mean, as I said, they, they 
they do miss Mascherano among among some others, really. I mean, I think they do play tonight with like Giolo Celso, Rodrigo de Paul, and the aforementioned Paredes in the, in the midfield three. So they certainly do sort of miss that destroyer, um, which they probably need because they've just got such a lack of, of pace and quality in the back four now. But I think there has been some minor improvements under Scaloni. There have certain been certainly been times when things have been looking up. He's clearly learning on the job. Um, there was a, a period at which he seemed to sort of make them really, really compact. And I think that helped and that kind of helped solidify them a little bit and also seemed to help free Messi a little bit more on the counter-attack and by sort of crowding out some of some of the other players. So I, th I think that's helped. So, look, legit, I mean, we're, what, two years into Scaloni's management now and the, or even three, and the jury, sort of, for me, still seems out a little bit. I think Argentina still... Um, struggle with some of the issues that he first inherited when he took the job. To be fair to Scaloni, I think we have to view his tenure so far in the, in, in the context of, of what's been happening around Argentinian football, more specifically the national team in, in the last five years or so. I mean, what, Messi's twice retired, I think, from, from international football now. And obviously there was a disappointment in those final losses, but it was, I think they were more sort of retirement protests, really, because of the absolute carnage that seems to take place above. And again, I mean, that you could bring that right round to Scaloni's appointment. Argentina didn't have any money really to, to, pay, anybody, to pay out anybody's contract to give them the national team job. And of all the, 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 the sort of leading candidates, like to Simeone Pochettino, I mean, these days, contemporary football, why would they leave top European clubs to go and manage Argentina? And I think they most certainly wouldn't, given some of the struggles that they've seen um, in an administrative sense. From, from the AFA in recent years. Well, that's certainly a, a fascinating one to keep an eye on. And following you on Twitter is a good place to start, at Rupert underscore Fryer. We've been so grateful for, for your time and for chatting us through the career of Javier Maserano and, and, and more. Michael, thank you so much for doing your bit on this podcast as well. Looking forward to next week already. Just a reminder that if you are a subscriber of The Athletic, then you can listen to this podcast ad-free. So if you'd like to do that, do sign up today. Theathletic.com forward slash zonal marking is the place to visit in order to get a subscription of just £1 a month. So many other good podcasts in The Athletic stable. You can find them all on the site and app ad-free. You can obviously listen to us for free on all podcast platforms as well. Make sure you subscribe today and make sure you read all of the good stuff being churned out by The Athletic, Michael, Tom Warville and others. And join us again next week on the Zonal Marking Podcast brought to you by The Athletic. Mm -hmm.